If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Katie Moore. She's been an SLP for almost 15 years with experience working with adults across the medical continuum, from acute care to IPR to outpatient rehab for the past seven years. She's also a community manager and mentor within the MedSLP Collective. She's spent the last five to seven years building her skill set as it relates to patients with head and neck cancer, eventually building a caseload to open a dedicated SLP clinic within her surgical oncology head and neck clinic, working directly alongside ENT surgery, medical oncology, and radiation oncology. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So Katie's a repeat offender. She's been on the podcast before, but tell the people a little bit about yourself if they don't know. Yeah. So um, I'm a medical SLP for almost 15 years now, which is crazy to even utter those words. But all of my time practicing has really been with adults. And in the last probably three to five years, it's really been primarily focused on patients with head and neck cancer. That's kind of where my full-time responsibilities land in, in an outpatient surgical medical oncology clinic. I've also done some adjunct professor work for dysphagia and voice disorders. And then I'm also a mentor and community manager within the MedSLP Collective. So 
kind of dabble in a lot of things, but it keeps life interesting and keeps me from getting bored. So, And you're one of our cherished mentors, Katie. I know you've contributed so much and people just learn so much from you. So thank you for everything you've contributed. So I will paint the picture to everybody of why I wanted Katie to come back on now. Like I said, she's been on the podcast before, but you know, it's the new year, right? Everybody's excited for the new year, new year, new you, all those slogans, right? And, and I'm just feeling this whole this year to like, not go that way. Like, I just want to pare everything down and just live like very simply and have systems in place and things like that. And so I've tied that in with, you know, what's going on in my PhD studies right now. I've taken enough healthcare administration courses that I'm I'm earning this healthcare administration certification also. But in taking those courses, what I keep learning about is a lot of change management and systems that are in place for, for healthcare that SLPs just do not know about. And part of the you know, the interesting thing that drives me insane is I was in this group project and there was a PA and I think a PT and there was somebody else in the group project. And we were talking about this, just the concepts of all this change management in healthcare. And like, I just find this course so fascinating. And they were all like, well, we've all learned this before. We all learned this in grad school. And I was like, oh, you know, of course you did. And and it just got me thinking like, why do SLPs that are working in medical settings, working in medical centers, not have exposure to this? So I'm going to be talking a lot more about this because The thing is, is we don't, you don't have to subscribe to hustle culture. You don't have to think that it's this insurmountable mountain that you have to climb to affect change in your facility. And I know you're someone that's, that's done it before. And I want to just really talk about it sort of in in this systematic way that you can get things done and you can still, you know, you were only working part-time, I believe at the time, right, Katie, when all happened and you have a family and, and these are things that I want to talk about more because I think people think you have to work 80 hours a week and just, you know, pay homage to the healthcare God, you know, administration gods. And, and that's how things happen. And, and it's really not. So total sidebar, but I just wanted to paint the picture of where this podcast came from and yeah, what I want Katie to talk about. So I guess, so, so take it away, Katie, where do you want to start with this topic? Yeah. So, you know, just like you said, when I kind of got into this whole head and neck cancer population, it was really on a part-time basis. There wasn't the caseload for it, but there was the need because we had hired a dedicated surgeon and her vision was to grow a program where all of our patients would have all of their needs met at our kind of, we're technically a smaller community hospital, but part of a much larger health system. And part of her contract when the hospital system hired her was all of her patients would have everything done where she worked, but did not include all of the subsequent processes and departments that would be involved in that. Primarily, speech therapy was a complete afterthought, which just blows my mind when you really think about patients with head and neck cancer from a surgical standpoint. That's kind of like the critical piece you would think about. You know, they had all the surgical stuff and OR suites and clinic space and all these things. And then, but how are my patients going to communicate now? Like, it was kind of a an opportunity that came from that, but it was still, it was five years of back and forth with administration and how are we going to make this work? And like you said, for, as a speech pathologist, we don't get that exposure to how different hospital processes and administration and all of these things that have to happen in order for change to occur. So talk to me a little bit, Katie, about, you know, did did someone sort of bring you on board or were you like, hey, wait, guys, like this is sort of my wheelhouse. Like, please don't run this without me. Like, I'm always curious of 
Did you create a seat at the table for yourself or were you invited to the table ahead of time? So I kind of had to create a seat at the table myself because I was not even aware that we had hired a dedicated surgeon. It really came more from a complete afterthought where our acute care SLPs were trying to get patients discharged and have services set up. We're talking patients from like total laryngectomy patients to glossectomy patients. And they called me being kind of the lead outpatient speech therapist and was like, what's the plan? And I was like, well, what do you mean? What's the plan? Like, we didn't even know this was happening. And so I had to kind of advocate through our counterparts in acute care to start being included on emails that were going around about services and kind of using that to then get an introduction to the surgeon and her administrative staff and various things like that. So it was kind of like an introduction, but I had to interject and be like, no, I am the person for this because they were ready to send their patients to the larger hospital which was an hour and a half away. That was definitely like, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to find a way to make this happen. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I love what you said that you didn't even know about the surgeon. I had worked at a, at a facility that was attached to an ENT clinic. The ENT clinic, they were more like ear and nose specialists, I would say. Like, and, and I couldn't send patients there for really any, any like, you know, laryngeal issues, basically. And then one day I got a call from a guy and he was like, I heard you're, you know, a swallowing specialist. I work next door. And I'm like, wait, you do? And he was like, yeah, I'm I'm a laryngologist. And they said that, you know, they haven't had any laryngology services here. So they brought me in and said, I should connect with you. And I was like, oh, and it was like, it was just the best thing ever. But like, had he not found me, I would have had no idea that this dude was literally right next door again. So just pay to have those relationships. So. Okay. So yeah. So let's talk about, I mean, where did you start with this process? I mean, did they sort of guide you along or did you just have to do a lot of research? I, I know you were very active in the collective and, and asking questions to other people and, and reaching out to other SLPs about how to get this going. It was a lot of self-initiative because I had had a decent amount of experience with head and neck cancer from some prior work history, but it wasn't a population that in like the last two to three years that we had really had because we didn't have a surgeon and these patients were typically seen at the larger hospital and kind of stayed over there for their outpatient follow-up and things like that. So it first kind of started off with, you know, trying to find courses and education to kind of brush up on things, make sure like research hadn't really changed in terms of what is our role, you know, from like the prophylactic pre-treatment side of things, to post-treatment side of things. And that's where the collective was a really big help in kind of trying to sure up the clinical skill side. And then once I really felt confident that like, yes, I can take care of these patients. The other therapists on my staff can take care of these patients. Then it was kind of, we had to prove that we had the facilities, the clinical equipment, the space, as well as our skill set in order to be able to work with these patients. And so then it really came to making sure we were being involved in the meetings that were happening from the administrative level. And that's probably the hardest part because of all of the different departments that were involved. And even within like the speech department, there's so many different kind of subsets 
of it based on which hospital you're actually affiliated with and what clinical specialty skills you have that we were never even a thought to be included. So it was kind of bringing to the attention within our own leadership, you need to be bringing us to the table, not the speech therapist from this other hospital because they're not who's supposed to be, you know, that's not what the surgeon's contract literally states. It was constant. Like it was every month when meetings were supposed to be happening, I would hear from other people, oh yeah, we have a meeting tomorrow. And I'm like, <laughs> news to me, like, because again, we weren't included on the meeting invites and all of these things. So it was a constant like, all right, if this person is like, oh yeah, you need to be on it. Okay, who's your administrative assistant who's controlling the meeting invites so I can make sure that I'm on it consistently? That was a huge battle, just that part. But once we were consistently at the table, it was really like, all right, you're the expert. Tell us what you need. And so that was the first time that I had been in meetings where it was truly administration, even the surgeon and her PA, like looking to me to say, tell us what you need to make this happen. And so once we kind of got to that point, that's when things started moving faster in terms of, you no, know, we did need to purchase certain equipment and some higher cost continuing education courses and things like that. But once we were at the table consistently. I was seen as kind of our regional expert, so to say, with this population. The surgeon and I started having conversations and to really build that relationship and that trust. And then she became our biggest advocate. Anytime there was a speed bump in terms of funding or clinic space or schedules or things like that, it was always, she kind of took care of it because she knew she held a lot of control because of how her contract was written. But it was, I, you know, I had to build that trust with her. Like she had to, I started to see some of her patients in our kind of like our generic clinic that where we would see all sorts of patients. And that helped build that trust. Like she knew that I knew what I was talking about. She was seeing her patients have success and was like, okay, this is worth the investment. Talk to me a little bit, Katie, about sort of the courses that you took to get to feeling this level, feeling this way. And then from there, how you requested funding to get even further continuing education to further move the program along. Because I think so many times people think, well, I have no education in this area. I don't know what I'm doing. And I definitely don't recommend just getting a seat at the table if you have zero experience in this area. I think you need to start to create a plan to get educated in a specific area that you're passionate about. But I'd love to hear sort of that point of when you were like, okay, I have a good enough education, but I still know that I need a lot more. Yes. So I was really lucky like in prior work experience to have exposure to a lot of patients with head and neck cancer and total laryngectomies. And so I had some boots on the ground, hands-on experience. And so I then in that, when I had that two to three year gap, when I wasn't really working with those patients, but now knew that this was going to be a population we were working with, I really went back to just kind of some almost like introductory level courses through like MedBridge and even some of the resources within the collective that like, I think it was Kelly Salmon had contributed and Megan Nosel at the time and was like, oh, it kind of helped reaffirm in myself. I was like, okay, like. This hasn't changed, you know, or, oh, here's a new research, you know, area that's kind of 
growing more like validity with like eating through radiation therapy and some various things like that. And then it was really at that point where I was also starting to see more of our head and neck patients consistently. And it was figuring out like, what's the common theme that I'm noticing throughout these patients that I'm seeing? And it was really a lot of trismus. It was a lot of post-radiation fibrosis, muscle tension. Um, and so trying to then hone the skill set to treat kind of those more specific impairments. So, and that's where I started to then advocate for more of those like in-person, more expensive training courses, like the ArcJ Trismus course, the Walt Fritz manual therapy course, McNeil dysphagia treatment program, kind of those courses that really targeted the impairments that I was seeing with the patients that I was working with. And I was kind of felt like I was spinning the wheels. I'm like, with what I have in my tool bag right now, I'm not, we're not getting anywhere. We're not making progress. And so then that's, you know, to even figure out what courses those were that I needed to take, I went to the collective and was like, anybody have any ideas on how to get more confidence or skills with these impairments that I'm seeing. And so a lot of the recommendations came from mentors and other members about here are some really good courses and they're good courses because they don't just teach a certain approach or technique, but they do go into much deeper level dives with anatomy and physiology and the why. And so a lot of times what I use is not necessarily one specific approach, but it's a hybrid of all of these courses that I've taken because I understand the principles and the why behind what interventions are working to custom what the patients need. Now, and so now like, you know, some new barriers that I'm kind of encountering is we have an extensive wait list for lymphedema therapy. So I just submitted a continuing ed course for the CLT um, LANA to, you know, can I become a certified lymphedema therapist and just do the whole package? Because there's such a correlation between dysphagia and lymphedema and post-radiation fibrosis, like you can't treat them in isolation. So going back to what you kind of started with of knowing how the health systems work, they're not just going to approve a $10,000 training and weeks away from the clinic to go do that unless they understand how it's financially going to benefit them. And so that's what I had to take a long time to learn is that it really still all comes down to numbers. And so writing your proposals for those in a way that speaks to the business administration side of healthcare to get those things approved. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that, Katie. How did you learn that? How did you decide that, okay, you know, this is what my time is worth. This is what the income or the you know revenue that can be generated for the facility. I think those are the things that SLPs are like, I don't know this stuff. This is not what my degree is in. So yeah, talk a little bit about how you how you went about that. Yep. <laughs> yeah, awesome. A lot of rejection. <laughs> I got a lot of no's for a lot of years. <laughs> because doing things was for like pain, continuing it hours. And that was not what the hospital system wanted. Like, yes, we had a continuing ed fund, but it was not very large. And so when I was getting a lot of these no's just because it was going to take too much of the budget, I was, I went to my supervisor and I was like, what do I do? I'm like, cause she was a big advocate. She knew the need, you know, she was involved in these meetings and she was like, well, 
you know, she comes from a physical therapy background. She has no speech therapy background. I'm the first speech therapist she's ever had to work with from a supervisory standpoint. And she's like, well, you know, we don't have these issues from the physical therapy side. And so she partnered me up with one of the lead physical therapists who actually is like in sports medicine, completely not related to anything I would do. But he really sat down and walked through, like he would get entire athletic training certifications paid for, for his staff. And he was the one who really opened my eyes to, yeah, it helps the patients. And yeah, that's why we're here in healthcare. He's like, but bottom line, the hospital wants to know, is this going to make us more money? Is this going to decrease length of stay, hospital readmissions? Is this going to be more billable services? Whatever that looks like. And I was like, that was the first time after, and I have been working in healthcare for 10 years at that point, that it was ever explained to me that way. And it took somebody who knows nothing about speech therapy, head and neck cancer, or anything like that to just be like, think of this as a business proposal. And that's when everything started changing. And the funds for those courses did not come from the continuing ed fund. It came out of our budget line. And so when it was brought up that way, it changed like, oh, yeah, a $1,200 budget line item versus $1,200 coming out of continuing education. It's a lot different from the business administrative side. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. I think that's what's so important is that, you know, it's so important for SLPs to understand the financial dynamics, really. And I know we don't want to talk about that stuff, but but we have to because it, it impacts our career fulfillment, essentially. But also, I love what you said, because I think, you know, just in my experience of, of working in nursing homes for years and years and years, it was like there was a real difference almost in facilities that really just only cared about the bottom line and not that they were evil people. It's just that that was what the administrator, how they knew to run a facility to keep it going, the lights on. But then there's other facilities that are very much all about these other factors, sort of like patient health and safety, rehospitalization rates. So it's so important to learn what makes your hospital or your facility tick. What are the things that they strive for? What are their core values or their mission statements? Because some of that might be built in there. And if all they want to do is keep, you know, keep the budget in line, then you know to speak to that. But if they are really concerned about patient safety quality, if they're really concerned about rehospitalization rates, and that's what you know to talk about because you know that you're now speaking their language. And I think we just don't do a good job of, of knowing about that because you don't know what you don't know, but also, you know, learning to really speak that language and, and learning what your facility, what language your facility speaks. So, so you said that, you know, you learned that your facility really just cared about the bottom dollar and they just wanted to know, you know, how if, you know, they have this budget line item, what it's going to do for the facility long term. How were you able to calculate or how did you come to that, you know, consensus for your proposal of what the results would be for the facility? So I did a lot of data tracking, both retrospectively and prospectively in terms of I looked at how many patients we kind of lost to other health systems because of wait times to get in for like lymphedema therapy, various things like that. And it was a much larger percentage than I even was really aware of. So we were were losing patients because we didn't have access and availability. And once we identified that, our immediate fix was to start holding slots every week on our lymphedema therapist schedule for head and neck patients to kind of stop the bleed. 
But then it was also, you know, for our patients when I was looking for like the the trismus courses and the myofascial release courses, it was like, okay, I've seen a patient for 12 sessions. We've made no progress. You know, technically I need to be looking at discharging this patient who's still on a feeding tube, who is on charity assistance from the hospital. So the hospital is paying for all of their feeding tube supplies, peg tube changes every three months, their actual tube feeds, and kind of got some, went through the finance department to figure out how much all of these things would cost versus how many patients they were doing this for just within the head and neck population because we weren't making progress. And then kind of compiled all that with, here's the cost of the course, here's some research based on these techniques that indicate, you know, improvements in patient outcomes and return to PO by mouth and removal of feeding tubes and the kind of the cost benefit analysis of the hospitals paying for all of these. Because one thing with this population is they tend to be lower socioeconomic status very restrictive health insurance. And so the hospital uses a very large portion of their charity funds for our cancer patients, for very long-term care needs. And so it really came down to we could save the hospital money if we can get feeding tubes out of patients, get them eating by mouth. And does that happen for every patient? No, but it happens for a lot of our patients, which still saves the hospital a lot of money. And that's also how we advocate, you know, if we bring on a new speech therapist for them, for the hospital to pay for them to be trained, to make sure that we're constantly thinking forward with that, not that just this training stops with one therapist. It's got to be sustainable. With that type of analysis, we've never had a denial for some of the, for those specific training courses. But it is a lot of legwork. It's a lot of data collection, chart reviewing, and they want that data over a long period of time. You know, they don't want it for just a month or two. So you've got to have patience, which is not something I was born with a lot of. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's the thing, too, that I want SLPs to understand. Like, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? And and a lot of this stuff does take a lot of time. So, yeah, this might be a 2024 goal for you, and you can get a heck of a lot of traction in one year. But this might not come to fruition until 2026. And I think it's hard to have that sort of patience, but it's also if you think this is what you really want and this is your career trajectory, it's worth putting that work in. I know that I've, you know, I have got work in the pipeline that I started three, four years ago that still really hasn't come to fruition yet, but it's patient. You have to just stay the course and, and do the work. And I think so many times we just stop before it's it's time. You know, we we just say this is taking too long. It's never gonna happen. And we just give up. And that's just human nature. That's not that's not SLPs. It's hard to see the fruits of your labor when you're not seeing the fruits of your labor. But yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So but yeah, there were several times, well, more than several times during the whole process where I was still like a generalist seeing strokes, dementia, all time, you know, the whole gamut while still trying to foster this program. There were multiple times where it's just like, I'm done. I'm just, I can't do this anymore. I'm burnt out, like ready to walk away from speech pathology as a whole, because I was not happy with the population that I was working with, wasn't gaining traction, but I'm glad that I stuck with it and I'm glad that I had people to support me to stay with it because I've never been happier in my career than with what I'm doing now. And is it perfect? Absolutely not. But it's a lot better than even where I was 18 months ago. 
but it took five years of that hard work and wanting to throw in the towel and walk away and just be like, oh, it's not worth it anymore to get here. I love that, Katie. Thank you for sharing that vulnerably. I know. Yeah. So thank you. (laughs) One, One thing I did want to mention is thank you for also bringing up, you know, sort of that you're your hospital had these foundations or these charities that would contribute to the care of these patients. And I think that's a whole nother window that's been opened up to me in the last year in my PhD studies is how much these other professions rely on grants and foundation funding to do things that they want to do. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, they're like, well, I want to start this program. I'll just get a grant for it. And I was like, it's that easy. And they're like, well, yeah, you just go to your hospital foundation or you look up on a small business website and once I got into that, like I I could not believe like the amount of funding that is out there that we as SLPs just don't know about. So I love if you could talk about a little bit about how you learned more about that sector and how that did influence your proposal and how you did include that. Because yeah, we don't want to be taking from these foundations if we don't need to. Obviously, we would love the funds if, if it gets us the jump start, but if there's a way to restructure the program that we don't need to keep pulling them. From them. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that if you can. Yeah. So I've learned about that probably kind of from more of a non-traditional way, I would say. We were very closely with our insurance, like our financial care counselors in the outpatient realm, the ones who get all of like our prior authorizations and visit approvals and all this kind of stuff. But our financial care counselors and our caseworker, social worker work in the same office in our cancer center, at least. And so we would have patients who like, they ran out of two beads and they need more and all of this. And that would kind of go through the social worker. And then the financial care counselor would get them into these different grants, essentially through the health system to help cover the costs of these supplies that they couldn't afford. And it came up it was not even about like dysphagia. It was a total laryngectomy patient who had no insurance, who couldn't afford their HMEs, their base plates, all that kind of stuff. And I was working with the social worker to figure out, is there anything we can do? Like, I can't keep giving you all my free samples <laughs> kind of thing. And she's like, oh, well, there's tons of grants and foundations through the hospital that we can apply for. Like, I just need you to write a quick letter of like medical necessity. And I was like, wait, what? Like, that's all that, that's it? I'm like, well, what other kind of stuff does it cover? And she like went on and it covers, you know, not just their doctor's visits, but tube feedings and entire hospitalizations and all these kinds of things. And so that's kind of what first got the wheels spinning when I was getting these denied, you know, when I was working with the physical therapist on how can we get some of these things approved through not necessarily like continuing education funds, And it was really just kind of in conversation with learning these bits and pieces of information. And it was like, oh, well, why don't we try to justify how much money that we're taking out of these funds for the hospital to the continuing ed, essentially the training side. And then those monies in the future could then be allocated for other patients helping more patients, you know, all those kinds of things. So it wasn't like one thing in particular. It was like bits and pieces that would come in from the financial care counselor, the social worker. And those conversations really happened at our team, our team meetings that we have once a week, which is one of the really great things about being in that cancer center is once a week, we meet as an entire team of the 
surgical oncologist, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist, social worker, case manager, nurse navigator, financial care counselor, speech therapist, nutritionist, everybody. And so we not only talk about like our new patients, kind of like a tumor board almost, and what their treatment plan is going to be, but also issues essentially with current patients, ongoing patients and things like that. And so getting the information from those other disciplines about I remember one time there was a nurse, one of the nurse navigators was there and the patient had diabetes and couldn't get their insulin. And they were like, oh, well, we'll just, you know, come out of this fund and have them go through our pharmacy where it's the cheapest and they can get a year's worth of insulin through the grant. And it was like, yeah, yeah. What? Thank you for sharing that. Katie. I think again, it's, it's things that we just don't know about. Like, unless you're really involved in these conversations in your facilities, you just don't know that we just think we're the redheaded stepchild of therapy. And and that's really the key is get, getting beyond just our own discipline. You know, even PTOT speech, getting beyond that, like getting in with those, with the social workers, the nurse managers, the all of those other people, because like my mind is still constantly blown at not only what their responsibilities are for their jobs, but what they're able to get accomplished for their patients and things like that. It's it's, it's inspiring. I, I think it really is. I think when you can see what a whole team can really accomplish and, and the commitment and dedication that it goes in for the patients is really, really mind-blowing. So thank you for that, Katie. Anything else you wanted to cover? I Well, if it's all right, I wanted to kind of just share like a patient experience yeah. that kind of just pulls the culmination. All of these aspects that we've kind of talked about, it's a patient who's a total laryngectomy, been a total laryngectomy for about two to three years, been pretty stable, but came in for like a routine prosthesis change. And again, being part of this like multidisciplinary clinic, all the doctors are there. So you're never working in isolation. So if you have questions, they're more than happy to come in. They pull me in to go see their patients when they're in their room. Well, this patient, I've never had an issue changing the prosthesis before. I could not get it out. Could not get it out. Patients in like They've got a high pain tolerance, but like wincing in pain. Now they're bleeding. And I'm like, what in the world? So I asked the surgeon to come in and she can't get it out either. And she, like, we're both like all our might there. This prosthesis is not budging. And so the only option was to have to surgically remove it in the operating room. But the problem was they've never replaced the prosthesis other than when they do the initial puncture. And so the surgeon was like, all right, well, the patient scheduled for surgery next Tuesday, you're going to come in during surgery and replace the prosthesis. And I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> well, I've never done that before. Obviously, I've changed the prosthesis before many, many times, but never in a surgical suite. And she just said it like, oh, yeah, no big deal. In my mind, I'm like internally freaking out because it's been on my to-do list to go in and observe one of her surgeries. I've observed others, but not her in particular. And so this was even going to be my first time in an OR suite with her in general. And so she's just like, oh yeah, no big deal. Like it's on the schedule. Just come 15 minutes early to get scrubbed in. And I'm sitting there like, I think there's a lot more that's got to happen than just showing up to the surgical, you know, front desk and being like, I need to scrub in. So my immediate, you know, response was to reach out to my supervisor and be like, here's what's got to happen. <laughs> and by the way, we have five days to figure this out. And so she obviously had no idea what to do. So she called her director and his first question was, well, is this something that I can even do? And so it was truly clarifying what was my role going to be in there? Because it's not very common for a speech therapist to be 
in surgery, essentially assisting with surgery, not as just an observer. And so it was clearly outlined that I was going to be doing the skills that I've already been, you know, checked off on hospital policies to be able to perform, just that it was going to be performed while the patient was under anesthesia with the surgeon and I mean, the whole team there. And so I was like, okay, yes, this is something she can do. But now how are we like, there's processes even within the ORs that like have to be followed. So then the very next day I was set up to go over to the OR for orientation with one of the OR managers to, you know, kind of get the the quick rundown, what supplies I was going to need because they needed to be there already. I can't just bring them in off the street. And so learning through that whole process and having the full support from like my director on down day of surgery, essentially we get in there, scrub in, sterile field, everything. And the plan was that she was going to do an esophagoscopy to scope down through the esophagus because the concern was there might be granulation tissue that has overgrown the prosthesis that she'd have to surgically remove in order to get the prosthesis out. She couldn't even get it in because the patient was so stenosed. So we were completely flying blind. But we did ultimately get the prosthesis out. The patient was intubated through the stoma. So it was coordinating constantly with anesthesia like, okay, they're going to pull the ET tube so we can have 10 seconds to size the tract, then come back out, put the ET tube in for a minute, come out for 10 seconds, dilate the stoma. Like it was a whole learning curve. And in all of that, there were two residents and a PA who had never seen a prosthesis change. So explaining to them while doing this, how to insert the new prosthesis and, you know, do that during surgery um, was quite an interesting experience. But ultimately, it ended up turning out great. We had a good fit. I saw the patient in post-op once they were awake to have them drink some liquids to make sure they weren't leaking, that they had a strong voice and, you know, was able to have a really great outcome from that patient. But that was like the culmination of, to me, the epitome of all of this was the trust in the surgeon to have me in there to do that. The trust from my administration that we had the skills to do that, the support from the OR staff to get me oriented in less than 24 hours, for to procurement, to getting the supplies needed, you know, on short notice into the OR and all of that. But it was, you know, to me, that was the culmination of the past five years of figuring out how are we going to do this? <laughs> yeah, I, I love that, Katie. Thank you so much for sharing that. What a cool story. Yeah, and, and I hope some of the SLPs just really feel inspired yeah. by what you've gone through and and just really hearing your true fulfillment in your career now, because I think that's just what everybody is seeking. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, any any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to share? Not that I can think of, um, other than just, you know, if there's something that you're really passionate about, like, you know, if it's if it's truly your drive, you're going to find a way to hopefully get where you need to go. But it is a lot about, you know, finding the right people to support you, being willing to step outside of your own comfort zone to learn things outside of the realm of speech pathology to help you achieve what those goals are and being vulnerable. And, you know, there were a lot of years of no <laughs> before we started getting a couple of yeses. And now there's a lot more yeses that come when there's requests put out there. So awesome. Thank you so much, Katie. I appreciate that. I, I appreciate this conversation so much. I appreciate you sharing your 
your wisdom and, and really your vulnerability and tenacity too. I think it's something to be said about, you know, just putting your head down and just waiting to see the whole thing through to fruition, even though I know you said you wanted to quit a few times, but we've all <laughs> been there, right? We've all totally. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was so inspiring. And I, it, it was a great way to kick off 2024. So yeah, thank you again. Thanks, Teresa. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.